Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm Sarah Watt. And I'm William Chen. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective, with some connection. It could be the same actor, the same director, or a similar theme. However, this month, we are doing something a little bit different, which is becoming a little bit of a habit for us at Cinema in Context. But there is good reason. And that is because it is our fourth anniversary. We are four Yay. years old today. <laughs> and we decided to focus on the four best fourth films. So if you sort of double t- did a double take then and you're not quite sure what we mean, well, we're going to explain to you in just a second. Uh, please be warned that the audio quality is not as great as it usually would be. And that is because we are all in our own homes at the moment in lockdown in Aotearoa. And also, we will be discussing minor spoilers around these films. They're all films that have been out for at least five years. And, oh, oh uh, no, no, apart from one of them. Apart from oh, one. you're right. Sorry, I lie. You're right. Oh, my gosh. They're all films that have been out for at least one year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, let's get into it. William, do you want to start us off with our film that came out last year? Sure, and this is a, a bit of a, a cinema in context first. We're actually going back to a movie that we talked about uh, previously, which is Toy Story 4. Um, I know Jeremy and I and our, our guests for that episode gushed on about how great it was, but Toy Story 4 is basically the continuation of a franchise that actually saw a very, very definitive ending with Toy Story 3. It's Pixar's Golden Goose, and I guess they wanted to wring some more golden eggs from it. Um, But basically, Woody and friends go on a new adventure and discover what it really means to be, quote, a child's plaything. Brilliant. And I mean, like we we said, it was an episode that you and I, William, uh, pieced together. Actually, it was our first virtual episode because we were both Mm -hmm. all around the world. In fact, Sarah was around the world as well, which is why she couldn't be on the on the call. But Sarah has hadn't seen the film and she's also going to be discussing it with us for the first time. So I'm looking forward to that. But before we hear specifically about Toy Story 4, Sarah, would you like to introduce our second of our best fourth films? I sure would. So. The fourth Mission Impossible film in the wonderful franchise that derives from the very, very old, uh, somewhat corny but kind of rad TV series is Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, uh, directed by Brad Bird, uh, who many will know is uh, the fantastic director of such animated features as The Incredibles, but here doing a rather fantastic live action movie starring the quite incredible Uh, Tom Cruise, and we'll talk more about him in a little while. Um, Plot-wise, as seems to be a bit of a theme, the IMF, uh, which I found out is not the International Monetary Fund, but stands for the the Impossible Mission Force, I think. Um, Oh, it's shut down. Everybody has to go rogue, if you will, except that that's a different one, Rogue Nation. Uh, Or watch out, because there might be fallout, although that's a different one as well, because that's fallout. So in this one, they all have to pretend that they don't exist in order to solve a crime, because they've been disavowed by their government Uh, and it is very thrilling and we'll talk about it shortly excellent well our third of the best of the fourth films lots of numbers in that sentence is 2015's mad max fury road which is the fourth in the mad max series it's directed by george miller which uh is mad max series is his baby he he created his career out of the original mad max starring 
uh, Mel Gibson, but he is not returning as the titular character in this film uh, due to some personal problems in the media and publicly. Uh, but we have Tom Hardy, who is taking the role as the sort of limited-talking um, solo agent, and he finds himself captured by a community of people run by a tyrannical leader called Immortan Joe, Joe, who is the, uh, the kind of grotesque leader. And his number one um, imperator, Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron, uh, she is on a mission to go and get some oil, but actually it's her um, breaking out the, um, the Immortan Joe's bunch of wives. And so to be all things considered, it's actually Furiosa's film with Mad Max there as a sort of support. And uh, what's, what ensues is one of the greatest chase films ever committed to cinema. And actually a number of people's number one film of the decade, including Empire Magazine. So yeah, Mad Max Fury Road. Now our last fourth film is a little bit of a, a curveball, I'd say. We definitely got a bit creative in thinking about what were the greatest fourth films. But I'm gonna hand it over to William to share with us what is our, our fourth of the fourth best fourth films for our fourth anniversary. William. (laughs) Thanks, Jeremy. Um, Well, our fourth film, I I mean, some of you might might have seen it, some of you might not. It's it's from a a young upstart director back in the 70s. Um, He he, he had a dream, he had an idea to make something something new from something old, something based on his childhood love of serials, Uh, the serial TV show, not serials as in Weebix. But I mean, it's a it's a story that's that's very well told. It basically features a um a desert where a dusty vagrant takes a young farmhand to a, sle- a sleazy bar to meet up with drug runners or a drug runner and his very hairy companion. The quartet then proceed to do pretty bad stuff. They slaughter countless government employees and cause quadrillions of credits worth of damages to government infrastructure. Um, but in the end, they actually awarded medals for this, which is a, a horrible, horrible thing for doing such such war crimes. But of course, speaking of war, it is Star Wars Episode Four: A New Woo-hoo. Hope. And I think uh, we we had big debates about, uh, like I said, which film. But um, Star Wars being the original and very first of the Star Wars series, but in the years that um, in the years between the first Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, George Lucas decided to slap on the title of Episode Four, sort of announcing to the world that it was the middle chapter in a series, um, and sort of back back loading or or backdating franchisation, if that's a word. Um, it's an interesting concept. I don't think any other film is actually series has started in the middle of the the journey quite the same way. Um, it, 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 it is a genius marketing move from someone who, you know, is, was full of the stuff back in the 70s and 80s. Just crazy, crazy what he was doing. Well, he pretty much gave away many of the rights of that film, but but um, ins- insisted on keeping the merchandising rights, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was one of the greatest financial coups in Hollywood history. I feel like there's a movie somewhere in the back of my, uh, in the annals of my mind that... Uh, that came out and it was the very first and it was original and it called itself something or other one um, in a very presumptive sort of or presumptuous sort of <laughs> because there will be more kind of way. But if I can't think of what it is, I should uh, really bring the story. 
I, I can think of a couple that have really tried to hop on the Marvel coattails of, ooh, let's have a cinematic universe. Um, does anyone remember M. Night Shyamalan's The Last Airbender, the um, adaptation of the animated series? I do. I remember the I remember the ten minutes that I watched before turning it off. Yeah. Ah, okay, that that's fantastic because the very first thing that you see in this travesty of a movie is book one. Oh, mm. so cute, so cute. Um, <laughs> there's also I think the other one that jumps to mind, Sarah, is uh, Batman v Superman and how DC were so quick to try and capitalize on, you know, superhero fervor and what the Avengers was doing, where they front loaded that movie with all these these really weird references to movies that would not exist. Um, flash forwards and flashbacks and they, you know, patting themselves on the back and thinking, oh, aren't we clever? This will make so much sense when movie number five starring Cyborg comes out in, in you know, 2020. Uh, and yet it was not to be. That is so funny. And I know that we're already veering well off our four films, but um, I will just say we are, we are thoroughly enjoying and have got to the end of um, – the latest season of Better Call Saul, the TV show, which is the prequel to Breaking Bad. And uh, it's absolute genius because my presumption is that Breaking Bad was created and then the the prequel was created out of what had already been Breaking Bad, if you get what I mean. And so therefore, every time the connections or the characters turn up or connections are made, it's utterly thrilling. But I, I presume it was at least done retrospectively. If you That doesn't even kind of make sense, but it kind of does. Whereas what you're describing, William, is this presumption of um, we, will, we will put these connections in in advance of films being made that will tie it together, if you get what yeah. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I mean, the other really egregious example is Universal's Dark Universe series, which started with The Mummy and ended with The Mummy. Um, and they were so <laughs> presumptuous that they had the entire cast of the future Dark Universe movies uh, come together for a, what was it, a Squire photo shoot, was it? With uh, Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man. Um, it was hilarious and so wrong-headed. And yeah, the shot the Schadenfreude is sweet to see just that never never come to be. Mm. You bring up Better Call Saul, Sarah, and you talk about the the thrill of how successfully they're weaving that prequel in, which mm. is good to hear. I think it's really hard to make a successful prequel, and I think Star Wars is a perfect example of that. And and my one of my biggest frustrations with the Star Wars prequels is not the the missteps in quality or storytelling. I mean, there's a lot of lovely things in Star Wars, the Star Wars prequels as well. But um, it is how you can't watch those films chronologically. It requires viewers to have seen the original films. And if you haven't seen the original films and you watch the prequels from episode one, two, three, it ruins the surprise of Darth Vader being Luke's father. It mm. ruins the surprise of Leia being Luke's sister. It ruins so many different surprises in that film. It it, it ruins the introduction of Yoda. And so I, I really push back on um, watching things chronologically in terms of how they fit within the timeline of the story because those prequels only work as prequels watched after the original. Absolutely. And you're so right. That is exactly the case with Better Call Saul. It would make sense, but it would lose so much of its delight and its relevance 
Uh, and so the very fact that we're meeting characters who, oh, oh, look, there's so-and-so who he doesn't even turn up until season, season three of Breaking Bad. Wow, is just amazing to be able to imagine these these threads of rope that are eventually going to be plaited together. You know, um, so, yes, I agree with you. Absolutely. And particularly with the Star Wars movies. Oh, boy, do they ever. And even with the sequel trilogy that Disney has been pumping out, I mean, it's very, very evident that, the, the you know, these ropes, as you say, Sarah, these tenuous connections just don't, they don't work if they all rely on one's love of the original trilogy. And with the prequels, I actually watched episode three in, in preparation for our episode four talk. And boy, the the final half an hour of that movie is so clunky. It's basically the cinematic equivalent of having a checklist and ticking them off one mm. by one. And mm. it's it's really, really bad filmmaking and it's not satisfying. And it should be, you know, a, a swelling kind of conclusion to this prequel trilogy, but it comes off as just so half-hearted and weak. I agree. That moment where Yoda, he has that one little fight with, well, it's a big fight with the Emperor. And then he's like, we have to go into hiding and I completely give up. I'm like, what? Like, this is just so fast and frustrating. I tell you what, back to one of your points, William, about cashing in on the the sort of the, the fury of of putting together these films. I do want to pivot to Mad Max Fury Road because I think that's a great example of the opposite of that, where there was a, a film and an idea that George Miller has had in production for a very long time. And, you know, he wrote the script and he wrote he drew the, the cells of the storyboard way back in, I think, the, the 90s potentially, mm-hmm. or at least around the 2000 yeah. zone. Um, and it wouldn't be made for another 15 years. And, my gosh, what a great way to take... Uh, like nobody even cared about Mad Max and I barely even knew Mad Max, uh, you know, generally. And he took this, this concept in this franchise that he has a lot of love for and he created something just, just spectacular that doesn't um, put, what's, what's the word is that intertextuality. He doesn't, mm. he doesn't rely on that nostalgia and that love of the original, which no. I agree with you, William, those flipping, like I quite enjoyed solo, the solo film, but my gosh, the worst parts of that movie were all of the intertextual reality. <laughs> references and i also hate just to back to star wars i hated in the latest i hated so many things in the latest star wars film it's the only star wars film i actually hated when i watched it i even loved the prequels when they came out um but that moment where the the lando calrissian character talks to the new stormtrooper character and he's like she's like what's my story he's like let's find out and i'm like no let's not find it (laughs) like i don't mind finding out but don't signal it in this film and then not answer it um, or, 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 or how about that moment in, in Solo where he meets Chewbacca for the first time and they actually tell you flat out why he calls him Chewie. And, and get this, it's because Chewbacca, well, that name's too long. I have to call you something shorter. Um, it's so offensive. <laughs> so here's what's really interesting to me about these four films that we've chosen sort of under the... Um, not that tenuous premise that they're the fourth in their series is is because we've got an example of a fourth film that actually is uh, is far superior to its three prequels that simply don't work. And as we know, it came out actually first and that makes it interesting and groundbreaking in its own right. We've got a fourth film in Toy Story 4, which 
certainly feels to me to be you've got a series of films and it's like that one was great what are they going to do next oh no that's great too number three wow how can they possibly go anywhere from there and it's still managing to go up and up and up and really work for mission impossible goes protocol it feels to me like we've had one two and three some of them were better than others and then all of a sudden boom there's like this comeback with number four where the film franchise says we know what we're doing we're going to really launch this now and to my mind has launched it into four five and six and we know that we've got a ghost uh, a mission impossible seven coming god willing next year and so on and it's still on on its way up you know and for me mad max fury road jeremy when you recommended it i didn't even know i mean i've obviously heard of the original uh the original um uh what's his name mel gibson one but i didn't realize that there had been three and this was therefore the fourth so to me fury road stands alone completely as its own film like it works on, on those grounds you know it didn't matter that i hadn't seen um the the previous three absolutely and i and i've only seen the i've tried getting through the first one and i I think I just sort of skipped through it. I started watching the second one and didn't finish it. I haven't seen the third one. From what I understand, you don't need to have seen the other ones to, to mm, make yeah. sense of it. Although the second one, Road Warrior, is it is one of the greatest action movies of all time. Like, it's fantastic. Uh, first one is very different. Like, it's it's not really the Mad Max we know and love. And then the third one is, I mean, there were a whole bunch of production problems. Uh, but it does have Tina Turner, has, like, rockin' music, and it has the Thunderdome! Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Ghost Protocol, because I had not seen this film before. And I think before I get into it, because I know William and Sarah, you're wanting to know what I thought of it, uh, <laughs> there's a few things I need to just preface this with. That is the original Mission Impossible film from 1996 was one of my favourite films growing up. I loved that film. And the whole tone that Brian Z. Palmer creates, the the thriller aspect of it, um, and the whole way that the team all dies at the start and then mm. Cruz is a solo agent, is I loved. I remember my parents, my parents saying to me at the time, but they, they enjoyed it, but they said it was always the team. It was always the team in the TV series. Like, oh, okay, sweet. The John Woo second one was fine, pretty forgettable. I just remember them pulling <laughs> off a lot of masks. That was ridiculous. And the doves, the John Woo doves. Come on, the doves, the doves. And and the bike V bike fight scene. Yeah. Yeah. And driving through flames. Yeah. So the John Woo, basically, yeah. (laughs) And then the third one, the J.J. Abrams one, I remember it being relatively enjoyable. And I I think he started to reintroduce this idea of the team. Um, Incredibles is one of the greatest films of all time. In fact, it's I think it's the best superhero film of all time. Oh, actually, no, Dark Knight series is pretty good. I take that back. But Incredibles is a brilliant movie. Uh, and so I don't know why I never really watched this movie. I remember being in Malaysia in a bus and it being on in the background and being like unimpressed. Um, yeah. Anyways, so I was looking forward to seeing this because I loved Fallout when we watched it a few years ago. And I watched it with my flatmate who hadn't seen it either. And we had a, we had a fantastic time. It was so great. Um, the first third, the first act of the film was brilliant. I absolutely loved the way that it built up the story, the fight in the the prison, the raid style fight yes. was amazing. And then the whole Dubai sequence was Oof. astounding. Like that whole sequence and knowing that he some version of Tom Cruise was on that building for real. It was actually uh, him. He actually did that stunt himself. Yeah, for, it, for weeks. They, they trained for weeks just hanging outside the Burj Khalifa with IMAX cameras 
and it's nuts. It's amazing. It is incredible. And that whole sequence with them in the different rooms and um, uh, is it, um, what's her name? Um, Leah Seydoux. Leah Sedu, uh, I loved all of that. For me, the third act in Mumbai, I oh. was as enamored. Um, <laughs> That's so true. And it feels a little like it's a, a totally separate film in a, in a way. It suddenly feels, the, the Mumbai part to me, sorry to leap in, but I'm quite excited, felt suddenly like a James Bond film. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that at all. But it suddenly felt that it had, it was, yeah, it suddenly, yes, it just, it felt a little bit like a different sort of film and you've got the, oh, ho, 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 kind of, uh, the, the baddie and the girl with the dress and the da, yeah. da, da. I, what, what I love about all of the Mission Impossible films is the old school use of masks and then kind of the new school use, I suppose, of technology. So in that, um, uh, not the opening prison scene, but the scene where they go to the Kremlin and they put up the big screen and they use the technology and the Tom kind of you know the 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 trick of the eye kind of uh situation to move closer and closer to the uh, the guard and i'm like wow this technology is really interesting and um and presumably doesn't really yet work but it feels like it could and i love stuff like that you know um so yeah I, and i love the creation of the masks and the use of the costumes and the um the deceit i'm sure there's a, a kinder word than deceit for when you're pretending to be somebody that you're not but all that stuff i just love that old school spycraft kind of stuff the the scene where tom cruise turns his um his his kremlin uniform inside out into a leather, leather jacket Perfect. so cool yeah <laughs> There's so many simple ideas like that, and I yeah. so agree with both of you, and, and especially that scene with the optic camera and the moving camera, and yeah. um, it's a great character for Simon Pegg as well, and I really mm. like the introduction of Jeremy Renner's character, mm-hmm. uh, and I know that he sort of appears later on, but if you compare yeah. the Mumbai sequence to the sequence that was filmed in New Zealand in Fallout, which was just so superior, mm. and I guess they were setting the groundwork, I could see the pieces of the puzzle with every team member having a piece of the kind mm. of ticking time bomb clock, whatever. They were to press, press a switch or touch a thing or put a thing into a plug and kill a guy. Um, and then I thought back to that experience <laughs> of Fallout and the way that he was hanging off the cliff and and just how they got that so much clearer and stronger. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Jeremy. I think the, the problem with Fallout, oh, sorry, with uh, Ghost Protocol is that it just peaks way too early because yeah. the, the Burj Khalifa sequence is just jaw-dropping and... Uh, you know, you've never seen anything like that before in IMAX, and you've never seen anything like that since. Well, maybe you have in future Mission Impossible movies. The Mumbai sequence just seems like just quite a bit, quite a bit of a step down from that. I mean, it's still spying and still pretty cool. And I actually think the party is really fun. And you know, with the slinky dress and kind of the Playboy guy and all the the team getting to their positions and Jimmy Renner, you know, doing the Tom Cruise leap when he doesn't want to, which is like heaps of fun. But it's, it's really the end when, as you say, they, they're trying to get the team together and everyone has their thing to do. And then Tom Cruise fights the guy on top of a, a, a what is that, like a car vending machine? It's like a cartoon. Yeah, yeah it's a parking it feels, lot. It feels so removed from all the physical stunts and everything that had come before. And it's just quite a bit of a letdown. Mm. And the scenes with the um, I, I forget the female character. I do think she's oh, her, J- Jane. Jane, played by Paula Patton. Yeah, she's a great actor, but I thought mm. her character left a lot to be desired. Um, I, I wish but, she came back. I, I hope they bring her back because she's really cool. I, 
I really like Paula Patton. And, and um, to me, the first I really saw of her was in Tony Scott's film Deja Vu with uh, Denzel Washington. Um, and I really like her. She just has a really nice vibe. She's she's plucky, beautiful. I, I like her very much as a as a, an actress, but I haven't seen her in anything that I remember since. It's really quite sad because uh, the reason I, I think one of the big reasons she wasn't in part five, even though they wrote a role for her, is that uh, she chose instead to do the Warcraft movie, oh. uh, which is god awful, and I think that kind of killed her career. Yeah, because she was, she just needed some better stuff to do. She's just a yeah. bit too earnest. Um, but they could definitely have written her something more fun because this, you know, in number four, she's busy mourning the death of Sawyer from Lost. Um, <laughs> I thought of you because I thought, oh, 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 the guy from Lost and Jeremy's obsessed with Lost as well. And so I'm really excited now about watching number five because I loved six. Oh, um, five, number five, five is awesome. It's. I think you'll have a great time, Jeremy. I, I think. I think five. It is. It is a much more complete work than four. Even though four has much higher highs, uh, five like everything just feels much more of a, a piece. Oh, cool. Well, I mean, I mean, this is a great example of a film re-establishing the 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 tone of the series to what I think could be a, an incredibly sustainable um, series. And Sarah and I were talking, William, before we started recording about. Um, number seven and number eight already in production. It's been put on hold with with the the recent um, lockdown and coronavirus pressures. But the fact that they've already got that in production, and I am not a fan of Tom Cruise as a person based on his uh, on just how toxic Scientology is. I'll say that. But mm. um, I forget that when I'm watching these movies because they're so damn thrilling. And we've said this, I think, in our in our lengthy enthusiastic fallout chat a couple of years ago. Um, I give him all credit for being for, by all accounts and I'm just like you with the Scientology I totally hear you but by all accounts on set he is gracious he is generous he is supportive he is professional he goes uh, 160% with everything and I really admire him for his work ethic and his um, film starness. you know there are very few people you know, cliche is there are very few people you call a real film star <laughs> nowadays, but I do think he is legit a film star, um, and and has and has proved his acting chops uh, in, in in a variety of roles and can laugh at himself like in Tropic Thunder. So, yeah, but but absolutely his dedication to performing these stunts. Do you remember when um, we talked about Fallout? And I'd read the interview where he had said, the reason I do the stunts myself is I want to give the audience their best time. And I want them to believe and know that this is me doing this because it increases the peril. And it shows that, and I, and I guess it shows that he's working hard for his audience and for that paycheck, you know, which is which is really admirable. Yeah, I, I think not since, what, Jackie Chan has, has someone really put their butt on the line for the audience's entertainment. Mm-hmm. The fact that he broke his foot on Fallout only just adds to that narrative. And I fully agree with him. Like, I I just couldn't get over that that Burj Khalifa scene. I was like, he's actually there. That's him. And he's hanging off. The... And just the thought of that window being taken out was just yeah. terrifying. <laughs> so the interesting thing about um, 
Rogue Nation, which is the next one, which we're all going to probably re-enjoy and Jeremy yeah. will watch for the first time, is that that one's directed by Christopher Macquarie. Um, and of course, uh, Chris Macquarie, as I like to call him, worked with old um, Tom Cruise in Jack Reacher and then Rogue Nation and then Fallout and is also the director of uh, Missions Impossibles um, 7 and 8. So that's that's pretty exciting as well. I rate him very highly um, uh, as, a, as a writer and a director. So that's so something I'm, I'm, to look forward to. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm already seeing. I'm just thinking about parallels to to the Harry Potter series because if you think about uh, number three, Prisoner of Azkaban, which we've talked about on this podcast before, and Alfonso Cuarón effectively did the um, the J.J. Abrams of that series. He redesigned what Christopher Columbus had set up. Uh, he changed the geography of the piece. He changed a whole lot of things in that series that really set it up for the rest of the films to roll out. Um, the David Yates film was m one of my least favourites, but there's some nice moments in it. And then really, um, oh, no, am I getting my people confused? Who's Who did the fourth film? David the Yates. Fourth the, which? the fourth of Harry Potter. Um, I think it's not David Yates. David Yates is the one I want to talk about at the end. Yeah, David Yates uh, did the later ones, didn't he? Yeah, so Goblet of Fire was directed by Mike Newell. Sorry, yeah. Mike Newell did the fourth one, uh, which was okay, not my favourite. And then David Yates did the last four, and he effectively was the the creative eye that brought that series uh, together much like and now i'm jumping on imdb as i'm talking to see much like christopher mcquarrie that you just talked to Sarah. um there is an element of the director in these series once the formula has been established which has taken a few films it's 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 almost like television isn't it it's like we mm. just need somebody to come in and do a great job of producing the best version of this formula and really it's down to the stars and then the story to be as and the action to carry this film. And it's yeah. interesting that you say the stars and the story because Chris McQuarrie, who I, I knew of in 95 because he wrote The Usual Suspects, but he's a he's an accomplished screenplay writer as well as director. And interestingly, he wrote Valkyrie, which starred Tom Cruise, but he didn't direct it because obviously Brian Yucky Singer did. Uh, and he wrote Jack Reacher. <laughs> He wrote Jack Reacher, starring our mate um, Tom Cruise. He wrote Edge of Tomorrow, which he didn't direct. Uh, and he wrote The Mummy, <laughs> which um, Tom Cruise starred in as well. So it's kind of nice when you see that screenwriters and a screenwriter slash director has a recurring relationship with the star. And as we know that Tom Cruise is, you know, pretty controlling in terms of the producers and the way that his films are made. You know, he doesn't just turn up and go, yeah, all right, what do you need me to do? So um, that, I think, brings its own level of uh, reassurance, doesn't it, that he's working with top, top, top class people. Yeah, I, I I agree. And just Edge of Tomorrow, what a brilliant movie. I love that film. Oh, so good. Time and again, time and again. It is so rewatchable. No pun intended, but it is so <laughs> rewatchable. So, yeah. So that's Ghost Protocol. Well, Sarah, I'm really keen to hear from you about your thoughts on Toy Story 4. What did you mm. think? It was absolutely delightful. So, for a bit of context... I saw Toy Story 1 back in the olden days. I may or may not have seen Toy Story 2. I definitely saw and almost cried at the end of Toy Story 3 and thought it was genius, um, powerful. Uh, the story was so on point. The animation was clearly wonderful. But that pathos at the end where you think that all the toys are going to perish was genuinely thrilling. So after Toy Story 3, I thought, well, where on earth? And I rewatched it, uh, incidentally, before seeing Toy Story 4. And I thought, where on earth can they go with this? Because 
you know, I mean, Andy's gone to college uh, and I don't think you're going to take your toys to college, but maybe you are. And I was like, well, I just don't even know where they're going to go with this. And how can they possibly top Toy Story 3? Well, they did. Even if you don't say top, they totally met it. Holy mackerel. So superficially, the animation was unbelievable i kept mm. thinking oh my gosh have they just like taken a photo of something incredible and then like put these little animated toys in it and i was like no sarah this is all legit the toy store <laughs> or the antique store rather and the playground e even and the fairy go that what's it the merry-go-roundy carousel -y, um what's that called fun fair amazing so so even just to look at, absolutely outstanding. But the characters, characterization, um, the the lovely Christina Hend, well she's not meant to be lovely. The um the Christina Hendricks doll, uh, Gabby Gabby. Gabby Gabby. Oh, amazing! Because what an amazing villain who has this really genuinely sad backstory. Um, uh, and for whom you can feel pathos because she's just not out. She's not just out and out evil like her her um, ventriloquist doll kind of um <laughs> you know oh um i thought it was a wonderful film i i was really surprised at how amazing it, it, it managed to be uh and i and and william all of your going on about it how it was amazing was vindicated my friend <laughs> there you go yeah i just am astounded by that film i watched uh i watched it again this week and the the journey like for me it is Woody's journey. It's a Woody film more than a Toy Story film. It, it's more of an epilogue, or at least I like to think of it that way. Because, yeah. like you said, Sarah, Toy Story three is such a milestone of cinema. Yeah. The way that they've taken that, you know, the first film was great. The second film was a great sequel, but then that third that third film just escalated the the existential mm. <laughs> exploration to a whole other level. And the fourth film maintained that. And so I think about Woody's journey, and he's dealing with. Uh, a new stage of his life where he's no longer loved in the same way that he was with Andy. And he's, he's trying to project that need onto Forky. Um, his kid, basically his child surrogate. Absolutely. It is like a father son relationship. And you've got Woody who is incredibly valuable in terms of he's an antique toy. In the second film, we saw how much money he's worth, um, but he's not loved in the same way by his, by his child, by his owner child. And then you've got Forky, who's just trash, literally trash, uh, who is incredibly loved by his owner, and just that kind of flip of that. And then you've got the Gabby Gabby character, who is, um, you know, desperate, desperate for love, love. Mm. and has become so toxic in her ways around that. And I really love the way they play with her villain role, especially with Lotso and with um, Stinky Pete from 2 and 3, how mm. she is another archetype of them, but she fl it flips, and it's really lovely. Mm. But then the third character that is a mirror to Woody's journey is Bo Peep, who mm. has come to terms with life moving on. And ultimately, she's the version of um, at least the logic of this this journey, the lesson that Woody needs to learn to, to move into the next stage of his life. It is mm. such a profoundly mature and universal story. It's relevant for a young child moving from kindergarten to school, and it's relevant for a, an elderly person who's recently lost their loved one. Like, it's mm -hmm. yeah. it's pretty impressive. And she's an outstanding, strong female character. And the fact that <laughs> right at the end, right at the end, so spoiler, whatever, da, 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 I say to my husband, oh, they better not kiss, they better not kiss. And of course, <laughs> they don't kiss because this is a children's animated film and it's not necessary and it isn't that kind of relationship. And 
she's just outstanding with her bandaged arm and 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 her mm. wry little kind of winks and all that. I, I just think I just thought Bo Peep was extraordinary as a character and what an amazing role model for the the youngins who are watching it and who are absorbing this without really well without knowing that they are. You know, William, do you know why they why Bo Peep was absent from it from number three? Like we notably absent. Obviously, they made it a plot point for number four, but I I, I think I remember. I remember reading the director Lee Unkrich just saying that they, they thought about who Bo Peep was, which is a porcelain doll, and what the toys would be going through, and she just wouldn't fit in the story since they'd be, I mean, <laughs> literally going through a rubbish dump. Um, but it's really cool that they made her fragility kind of a plot point for the fourth one because it does matter, but it, it kind of informs the view as to who she is. That's a good point about the broken. I hadn't really thought about the broken arm and her being actually sort of a, a porcelain statue and not something malleable or whatever. So, yeah. It's quite impressive. I had never really made that connection of that that, that amazing moment that you, we both alluded to in that burning trash dumpster, which I think everybody thought they were going to die. Mm. Um, <laughs> and the fact that Bo Peep isn't there and she is such a clear character for Woody in the first two films. I take my hat off to Pixar for then making that and making an entire film about that. It's it's really, really, again, very impressive. I'll tell you what else, though. If you remember back to being a small child, I remember having at primary school, I had a little notebook, and each week I would update my list of who my best friends were. Um, I'm sure we were all this fickle, weren't we? I don't know. Um, and um, But basically, there were people... You know, there are people you want to play with and you would die for one week. And then two weeks later, I'm not really friends with that person so much anymore. I'm friends with so-and-so now. And I wonder whether on a slightly meta level, Bo Peep stepping back or being pushed back or whatever for episode three, um, kind of it kind of uh, mimics that whole childhood experience of where well, you loved someone desperately at one point, um, but they're not your top friend Mm. Uh, at the moment you know but then they might come back later and be your your top friend again when you're a bit older because that connection that you had in the uh, you know originally was actually quite significant quite possibly i i hear you but equally it's still a film about characters isn't it and she disappears i feel like in number three there's an allusion to her woody sort of looks downcast at one point when bo's name is mentioned is that am i remembering correctly yeah that, that's right that's right um mm -hmm. when they talk about the the toys they lost along the way Mm. Well, talking about strong female characters, I do want to come back to Mad Max and back to Charlie mm. Theron's character because I think that performance is one of my favourite of her performances. It's it's so um, visceral the whole her whole journey, and that whole film is a is a feminist statement. I think when that first came out, Sarah, we we sort of had some disagreements about that, didn't we? And you took issue to the fact that there was. Um, uh, a crew of sort of beautiful women all They're half naked models. in the desert. Apart they from, are. Yeah. Apart from, is it Zoe Kravitz? Um, uh, you know, the others are models, like Rosie Huntington Transformers Whitley or whatever her name is, <laughs> you know. Like, and I, yeah, so that's exactly right. And I think, you know, would you believe, I did love, I did love the film initially and I gave it four and a half stars and I really appreciated it for what it was. But I objected just you know to the those women being wrapped in loincloths and um and and being these sort of giraffe-legged gammon uh waif-like beauties although i totally get it i totally get it on every level as to why that works 
But it was a bit like, oh, that's a little bit on the nose, isn't it? And by comparison, well, the irony is, of course, bloody Charlize Theron. She is a former model, but she happens also to be an outstanding Oscar winning, Oscar nominated character actress as well. It's funny that you bring up Rosie Huntington-Whitney, Sarah, because, well, two things. First of all, it was um, not that long ago that I realized, oh, she and Jason Statham are together and they have a kid. Oh that's, that's weird. What a what a pairing. What a pairing. Um, it, it was when they were in New Zealand when Jason Statham was filming The Meg, and they were seen around like Queenstown and Parnell getting coffees. Like, oh, wow, would you look at that? Yeah. Um, but also, uh, I I actually thought I genuinely thought she did a much better job as an actor in Mad Max compared to her last role, which is Transformers Three where she is awful. She's so bad. And just something about Mad Max, I think, brings out the best in people. It's it's really, really cool. She's only done two films. <laughs> well, those would be they, you know. Yeah. yeah. She, started as, she started as herself in many different things. But, yeah. Those actors, I think, there's something heightened about that whole world that yeah. sort of over-the-top acting fits quite nicely as well. It's sort of like a David Lynch film where everybody's so over-the-top and that's just part of the part of the vibe. And you've got those, the different wives. And they're, someone like Nicholas Holt, for instance, he's so over-the-top in that film as well. Mm. But it yeah. works so wonderfully. I love in all of the, uh, um, what's the, I, I don't want to, Volvalina, is that what they are? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not what I wanted to stumble over. Um, and just they're, they're, they're not the greatest actors either but it just works it works in the whole world I think the whole film and I really don't mean this to be offensive at all but the whole film shrieks of being um, uh, obviously a male fantasy because if you think about it even Tom Hardy who is without doubt the most handsome man on the planet in real life well you know plus a few but um, <laughs> even Tom Hardy spends about half the film with his his face um uh, not not uh, disfigured, but um, what's the word? Kind of like covered up. Every other male character is either utterly grotesque uh, and powerful and exploitative and gross, or Nicholas Holt, who is very very sweet, <laughs> is very sweet and stupid uh, and all those sorts of things, but is is kind of almost the epitome uh, in a lot of things that he does of being the um, the sort of the, the the nerdy weedy fellow who still gets the girl. Uh, and he gets a lovely girl and there's a lovely, loving relationship that's starting to develop there between them. Whereas all the women are outstandingly beautiful, like ludicrously. They're meant to be sort of hyperbolically beautiful because that's why you'd choose supermodels. Um, and Charlize Theron, who is very, very beautiful and still slender and powerful and all those things. So do you see what I mean? It's kind of like our hour and, and plot wise will drive one way. And we'll drive back. And I love I, that. That's one of the greatest. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. Watch it, soak it up. We'll pop in some ludicrous guitar music. We'll have lots of explosions, <laughs> um, quite a bit of sand, um, a little bit of pathos, but not too much. Uh, and you know, and otherwise it's just like goggle box, kind of like whoa, kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I totally, I do agree with you in terms of the way that it's. The, the male the male fantasy and the male gaze. It is very much a male gaze film. I will add a little complication of that, in that you do have in the second or the third act of this film the Vulvalina, who are not, you know, supermodels half naked. True. They're a warrior woman that are that are 
amazing and they have an instant connection with these young women and they, the young women look up to them and start to serve them and how, start to figure out how they can fight back. True, and in, so and in a sense, there's a meta quality of male gaze in this and that they have been established as the wives of this 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 horrible man. You've even got the woman that's in their, their kind of quarters, the older woman that tries to shoot him. Um, so there are, there are other female characters in this film. True, and they are strong female characters. So actually, to be fair, beauty aside, all of the women are... Uh, I mean, even even the ones uh, who turn up initially in the chastity belts are emancipated pretty swiftly, aren't they? So it is all very much a, a feminist fable of of empowerment. Yeah, and I would say that that kind of leads into the character de- development as well. Like you, you do say, and I, I agree, Sarah, that the the plot as it is is quite threadbare. I mean, yes, they drive one way, they realize there's nothing there, then they come back. But to me, so much <laughs> so much of the storytelling is in the characters, right? Like. If, if we're focusing on the wives, it, it really is interesting on rewatch how each of the wives develop as a character. Like they each get their thing. They they become very very different personality wise. There's there's different relationships between um, the. I mean, obviously, um, what, what's the name? They all have, they all have really cool names um, or weird names. Uh, Nicholas Holt and uh, Capable Capable. That's her name. And then there's uh, the Zoe, Zoe Kravitz as to- is she called Toast? Yeah, Toast to the Knowing. Uh, toast, <laughs> nice. And how <laughs> she kind of she um, gets on really well with one of the old ladies with the um, you know, and they have that talk about bullets and seeds and how bullets she sees as the seeds of death. Um, there's the the younger girl who originally wants to go back to modern Joe, but ends up helping everyone by using her qualities. Like it's all really interesting. There's a very mm-hmm. adamant point of giving every single one of the main characters like character development, which is just it's so true, rare true. in action movies that this happens. Um, and of, of course, we've talked about Nicholas Holt already, but uh, to me, like he has the character arc in the movie. How how his entire arc of redemption takes place and it's mm. it's never forced it's very very casual in a way but when you know at the end when he's staring at the team and we when he's staring at capable and he says witness me and it means something completely different from when he first says witness me mm. that is such a powerful moment for me that's a really nice point william because and nicholas holt i have, do have a lot of time for doesn't isn't that interesting what you've just said that the character arc is subtle and yet of course all the performances are quite hyperbolic they're quite over the top and and yet it's the the combination of his performance and being able to convey that so sort of as you say subtly is really impressive and then of course the music helps a lot with that as well well there is that the the score is incredible great isn't it it really is and it's notably great actually i really i I really heard it this time round because i suspect the first time i saw the film it will have been a big imax kind of in your faceness um but yeah really the score was very compelling well maybe as we wrap this up um let's let's return back to star wars because i think that is the grandfather of i mean all of these films i I would even argue the toy story series has a lot to to uh, answer to the blockbuster (laughs) that is star wars um but definitely the other two so uh, william do you want to kind of bring us home what are some thoughts you have on star wars i mean star wars is just it's so groundbreaking even to this day i mean you you know I, i i hate to keep ranting on about the star wars sequels but even last jedi which is you know it's fine but it's not great like they they all feel so clunky and and so 
derivative compared to the original Star Wars, which to this day, you know, a film from 1977 have so much having so much cultural influence and being so fresh every time you watch it. And I, I mean, I've seen it, what, 15, 20 times? And every time there's something new to enjoy and something something new to take away from it. And I think it's it's really cool that we're talking about fourth movies because, I mean, okay, Star Wars is retroactively a fourth, but if you think about four movies, there's not a lot of really good four movies. I mean, well, mm-hmm. let's go through these. Like, what? There's Jaws four, The Revenge, which is god awful. Uh, there's Superman four, which holy cow, that movie is so <laughs> bad. There's Batman and Robin, which I think has uh, some very, very great qualities, but it's often seen as the movie that killed superheroes for a decade. Um, I I know we've talked at length about Alien Resurrection, Jeremy. That movie, (laughs) interesting for a movie. But again, stuff like Terminator Salvation, which is bad. Born Legacy, yeah. Um, Transformers 4, which I I know before this recording, I was sharing videos with you guys about the blatant product placement in that movie. Like, it's it's just, it's crass commercialism, the movie. Um, and it's so in your face about it that it actually kind of, uh, kind of becomes charming, but also really, really gross. I um, make a case, uh, William, I do make a case, and you know this, for both Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. I uh, know, is it on Stranger Tides? Yeah. Which uh, I know yeah, a lot yeah. of people don't like, but I, have a gr- I love those films. I have a great time in those movies. Uh, even Indiana Jones, that... That that movie made me so sad when I saw it in 2005. <laughs> Jeremy, to paraphrase the talented Mr. Ripley, you love everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will say Pir- I, I enjoyed Pirates 5 a heck of a lot more than Pirates 4, I'll tell you that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> no. no yeah, let's so wrap I, this I, up. <laughs> I, I, I kind of just want to say that I think it's 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 great that there are four movies out there that are legitimately great, and also that I think Star Wars is really just that once in a generation masterpiece. That you know George Lucas I think is is a visionary and a genius, and it's it's sad, really really sad that later on in his career he just ran out of no men and started surrounding himself with people who agreed with his every decision and failed to rein him in when. I think the prequels could have been really, really fantastic if, you know, he had the people around him, a support network, which kind of reigned in his worst qualities. But that being said, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope is just amazing. Excellent. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can listen to us on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Radio Public. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram and Twitter, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode or give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare. Check out our next episode in a month's time. And until then, ka kite anō.